Well, this is what a well-worn copy of White Tiger looks like. The uh, style of it is pretty striking. Anybody want to take a shot at other novels it reminds you of? Yes. And not the cover. Reminds me of Salman Rushdie's *The Nice Children*. Okay, that's that's one interesting suggestion. Sophie Quentin, where are you? What do you think? Um, what do I think of the book, or is this related to the warm call email you sent the me? The warm the call. Day? Yes. Well, <laughs> um, in the back of *White Tiger*, there's sort of a reading group discussion with the author. And one of the things the author says that is kind of interesting is that um, his inspiration for Balram was, um, it, 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 he's sort of a composite character that came out of the author's experience, just hanging out in slums and train stations and in servants' quarters and listening to what um, basically the underclass of India are saying and how they are thinking. Um, and it's sort of, it's, it's interesting that Balram, who's such an angry character, is the embodiment of something very real that Adagatha Adiga, I guess, um, felt talking to people on the streets. Right. Okay, that's good. Um, in the, he also mentions three American novelists in the, in the back. Did you notice them? No, I did not. Okay. Um, well, it's interesting. The, um, I'll quote him. Um, the influences on White Tiger are three black American writers of the post-World War II era, Ralph Ellison, James Baldwin, and Richard Wright. So um, it has um, there are many ways to look at it. It is uh, written in a very straightforward style. That is, each paragraph is pretty straightforward. The subtext about how it's being told is uh, a little more complicated. And one of the other things he says in the, in the back, which, and this goes to the point Sophie made, uh, is that while uh, none of the characters or incidents are copied out of journalism, which is the author's business, uh, all of them are meant to be representative of something real in Indian life. So that the book is literally fiction but has a purpose, like many of the best works of fiction, has a purpose of describing something uh, that is very real. Uh, are there ways in which fiction can do a better job than social science of telling the truth about a country? Anybody got a thought about that? Yes. Well, it's an art form. It's something like social science can't really say, well, this makes me feel this, or this is like the nuance of that. And that's where art plays in. And I mean, for, um, also, I mean, it's mass media, too, in a lot of ways. So you can reach a lot more people through this and have it easily understood. Okay, it's mass media, but it actually does something that most nonfiction written by academics can't do, <coughs> right? Economists, political scientists, people like that. By and large, a little wooden and rigid, a little category bound, a little obsessed with methodology. And this book 
covers a huge swath of uh, very complicated aspects of a society which, uh, as far as I can tell, is top half dozen in the way of complexity in the world. Right? I mean, the structure of the historical structure of India and the incredible rate of economic and sociological change uh, have very few uh, equals elsewhere. Um, Divya, if I got that name right? Yeah. Um, again and again, the concept of, of, of the darkness uh, comes up in the book. Help us try to understand that. Yeah, so I think it's sort of literally and figuratively the darkness of India, the parts of India that have sort of been left behind in all the development and globalization um, where there's no electricity. So like literally it's dark when the sun goes down. Um, and where there's also a lack of like basic necessities like sanitation and like proper food. Um, and I think also the darkness of sort of corruption and bribery and like theoretically there being resources but those getting funneled into the hands of like for example um, like the great socialist who's you know campaigned to sort of lift the darkness out of the darkness but ended up just getting sort of sucked into the bribery of people in the upper caste in the town and um, continuing to take advantage of Okay, and from the point of view of uh, village India, deep in the darkness, uh, is it clear one way or the other whether the economic um, miracle, it may be too strong a word, but the incredible progress in overall development that's been made since about 1990 is a good thing or a bad thing? Like I think it's it's kind of goes both ways, and I think he talks about it in that. Um, I guess he sort of talks about it as the difference between um, the north and the south, or what like his, the two cities he was in. Um, it, when development gets kind of entrenched in corruption, then it ends up being a bad thing and ends up taking advantage of people at the bottom. But I think to me it seemed a little optimistic that it can be a good thing in places where it's being done properly. Um, okay. And you have in the back of your mind a, an idea or two about what doing capitalism properly means? Well, not really, I guess. Well, I'll bet you do. You know, not corruption, not bribing policemen. To okay. Not corruption, not bribery. I mean, um, I don't know. Are, I guess a lot of things, but okay. I think that's what he Well, let's go on and we'll find some of them. Um, uh, Sudhir. Yeah. Uh, there's a passage in, I think it's the first night in the book, about, uh, I think it's four animals, am I right? Who represent people. Can you help us with it? Sure, I think. The first point is that Adiga is making a statement about, uh, and quite unabashedly, landowners as animals, uh, who in this case quite literally feed off Lakshmangar's physical and human resources. Um, and I think the other obvious point is that the animals Adiga chooses uh, to represent the landlords aren't particularly glamorous. And I think he has a view of landowners as tacky, crass, lazy. Um, and it's clear that you know, one, of the, one of the few reasons or main reasons that 
they hold a position of power in society is they've probably descended from families of landowners who have a long you know, history of exploiting and extorting from the poor. Okay, now here's an interesting parallel. If you think about, the, about Clark, farewell to alms, uh, one of the big lessons there is that land is the primary basis of uh, economic return in pre-modern societies and loses its relative standing with development. So if Adiga is right, are the stork, the raven, the wild boar, and who else? And the buffalo. Uh, are they basically fossils of a previous era grasping for the last straws of a power base that will go away? Or given the nature of rural India, will they persist in that position generation after generation, do you think? You know, it, it's hard for me to kind of identify the trajectory of um, India's development. Just to say that I don't know how much of, uh, I guess, I mean, rural India is is large, makes a large chunk of the uh, the country and, and the economy for what it's worth. So I think there are probably, um, in the foreseeable future, there's probably a, a very good chance that characters like these four will still retain a good deal of influence um, in those spheres. I mean, obviously, um, you know, corporations are making their way into these, uh, in, into rural areas and setting up innovation camps and um, large offices. But to the extent that India is, um, uh, the rural base is strong, I think these people will thrive. Okay, and if, uh, if capitalism seeks economies of scale as it's wont to do, uh, small land holding uh, will be uh, eventually uh, undermined by large-scale landholding and agricultural development uh, on a vast scale. Or that's, that would be the textbook hypothesis. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Brazil, for example, uh, development on the scale of uh, farms uh, 25 or 35 miles square, 25 by 25, say, uh, is commonplace. And maybe India is different. And the reason it may be different is that the indigenous, the density of indigenous rural population is much higher. And the, the, the process by which land would be aggregated uh, may happen quite a lot slower. Uh, Maximilian, uh, where'd the title of the book come from and how do you understand it? Um, he calls it the white tiger because um, Balram stands out of all the other servants like white tiger stands out of, um, white tigers stand out of their, I don't know, the other animals who are not albinos because they're so rare. And um, there's one incident leading up to around becoming the white tiger that is, I guess, where they are on their way with the two um, sons of his masters to bribe a minister. And um, Balram reaches out to, um, to a beggar intuitively to help him and he gives him um, some money. And the sons of his master get really angry with him, um, 
giving him the money, um, and they start to complain about um, how many taxes they have to pay you and that they're already helping the poor. And um, yeah, that's how he realizes that the entrenched inequalities in Indian society will perhaps persist um, despite India's new prosperity. Okay, good. And uh, do you remember the part about the schoolhouse early on? Where there's a surprise inspection? Does anybody remember this? Have I drawn a blank here? Over there. Yeah, um, in the uh, beginning, I believe in, there's a surprise inspection and he's, uh, uh, the inspector comes in and asks uh, the students Bunch of different questions, and really nobody's able to give any uh, any good answer except for Balram. And uh, he uh, then asks him, I guess, uh, what's the he uh, asks him a certain question. I, I forget exactly what the question is, but the answer was that it's a white tiger. It's I think that is the most unique. Okay, so he gets named white tiger for being uniquely talented in a situation where talent is not being developed, right? And how does the school? Schoolroom operate, do you remember that? Well, it's interesting that Ballroom didn't actually blame the teacher because I guess the teacher like would steal the uniforms and all the resources that came, but I think at one point Ballroom even says like, well, I mean, no one really blames him because his payment also gets taken by someone else. Um, so the teacher, there's just like a chain of corruption that ends in the teacher basically stealing the resources that were meant for the kids and just sleeping all day or um, and while the kids do whatever. Okay, there, you know, quite often there's a, pat, a mention of the fact that the teacher was snoring while right. the students were supposed to be learning somehow from one another. Uh, and you're right in that. The, the, I think the narrator says something like, um, those who live in a dung heap can't be expected to smell well. And so there's a kind of environmental explanation, um, social, social environmental explanation. And do we, what do we think? Is this, is this a, a man bites dog story or is corruption a, a fairly major issue in Indian society? Who's got an opinion? Back. Uh, yeah, I think it's a fairly major issue because even when you make the transition into like the lightness um, in the book, you still get severe corruption, of course, with um, you know the ballroom's boss going to give the big bag of money to the government. Um, so I think it's corruption that pervades every level and kind of the light is a little bit of a deceptive name for what ballroom moves into because even at the height of his success, the only way he can succeed is by killing someone and then by paying off the policeman. Okay, now that's, that's elegantly put, but it's evidence from fiction about fiction. So what, it, the judgment I'm looking for is, is his claim that the book represents broadly truthful patterns in the society or not? You buy it or not? Well, I mean, having um, visited India myself several times and having uh, many friends from there, I've definitely heard, you know, considerable um, stories of corruption. I mean, I, I'm not in a position to, to judge the society as a whole, but it, it seems like it would have uh, an element of truth to it. Certainly. Okay, has anybody glanced at one of the world rankings from say Transparency International or 
other organizations which eva evaluate levels of corruption. Okay, the Socratic method stops here. Uh, India is near the top of the world table in uh, corruption as a per an issue perceived by uh, people in business as problematic. Anybody with substantial experience want to contradict or elaborate on this point? Okay. Yes. We need a mic in the middle. For, for a large part of people staying in India, especially doing business there, corruptions almost become a way of life. So they see it, they'd rather call the system flexible than calling it corrupt. So if uh, you want to get a government sanction, which will generally take three months, you can get it done in three, pay, three days if you pay an additional amount. And that's the premium for, that's a premium, that's not corruption. So for, for a large part of the society, it's a flexible system rather than a corrupt system. Okay. And, and a good American economist would call it? The inefficiencies in the markets, you're just exploiting them. Inefficiencies due to rent seeking. Right, rent-seeking, I love the concept. Um, Danielle, right on the, are you here, Danielle? Hi. Um, Dr. Ram Pandi, is it, Pandi? Something like that. Something like that. The, tell us about that incident in the book and give us something about what you think it means. Okay, so um, on page 41 of the book, uh, there's when they're all sitting, um, in, and the white tiger has taken his father to the hospital and they're sitting in the waiting room waiting for a doctor who won't come and an old Muslim man starts telling a story, um, <coughs> excuse me, about this fictitious doctor, Dr. Ram Pandey, and he talks about how the great socialist sells off plots of like, um, like districts to doctors and the doctors buy these districts, almost like a feudal system. And then the doctors in those districts will, um, they'll take part of the salaries from these doctors and then tell them, oh, well, now you can just go off and work for a private hospital. You don't have to worry about these people. I'll write it down in my ledger that you've been there. So basically, the government is on a totally different strata and all the money or benefits just get written down or written away and these people are left dying or with wounded legs like the Muslim man and he's just sort of laughing about it. So there's this sense like um, with the Muslim man and all the people in the waiting room, they're sort of laughing about their their problems or crying about them because, I mean, his father dies in the end. Um, Ballroom's father dies in the end because this doctor never comes. So the, the corruption and the resources are just like strewn about and there's, there's that. Okay, now I, that passage is actually quite polemical the way it's written, right? It's, it probably overstates, right? There are probably a hell of a lot of places where you actually can see the doctor. Mm -hmm and the doctor does pay attention to people he's supposed to pay attention to. But the general pattern described there, what's wrong with corruption? Corruption. I mean, it's a, 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 it, there, there are serious people who think corruption is not altogether a bad thing. For example, um, there are people who write about American cities and say, if you have to choose between corruption and civil service bureaucrats who do everything to the letter of the law, take corruption. Um, 
An example is, a uh, historical example was the Fulton Fish Market in New York, which was run by the mafia for a long time and ran pretty efficiently. I mean, there was some rent seeking uh, and some violence, but it worked and then Rudy Giuliani took it over and put in clean bureaucrats to run it. And people thought, well, it may not actually run as well this way. Now, but there is, there's counterpoint to that. There's a, there are some big themes about why corruption is from the point of view of growth and development and human welfare, probably not on average a great thing. You were, did you have a comment? Well, yeah, we, we can almost go back to Adam Smith in this regard, but, but not what he's most famous for. But he, he's, mm -hmm. he, he, he kind of gives us self-interest, but it's not this naked, isolated form of self-interest. You know, he said, capitalism only functions upon a foundation of ethical participants. And, okay. and if not, it's brutally, grossly inefficient because you can't get the right information around at the right time. Terrific. Right, and this is, I mean, this is a, a huge point in understanding Smith. Smith is a moralist, right? Smith's, in his own time, his famous book wasn't this. It was the theory of moral sentiments. And Smith is saying articulate self-interest, frankly pursued within a framework of honest communication, within a framework of honest communication, and with a government in the background that enforces contract and prohibits fraud. Within that framework, self-interest creates an upward draft on an economy. But if you take away that framework, the ethical aspects of, of people's beliefs and the proper functioning of the government in enforcing contract and related things, if you take all that away, uh, the, the invisible hand story uh, works, if anything, in reverse. And we're inclined to just assume that um, to, to just march too quickly by uh, the issue of that, that, fu that foundational issue. And the, I, have I asked you this? How many of you have done Ben Pollock's course on game theory? That's really, I, I recommend it to all of you. Um, but think, th think, this, think about this problem. Suppose you are operating in a system where everybody else is willing to lie in order to profit. And each one of those other people assumes that about all the people she, and he, she or he is dealing with. How do you form a strategy to make a business run? And the answer is that it is virtually impossible because you cannot anticipate the way people, people respond to straightforward incentives. And it's a big deal. And getting out of that, out of that dilemma, right? And the, the, another way to put it is there's a famous um, philosophical example, one version of which is a sentence you know, it, written inside a box which says this sentence is a lie or the sentence in this box is a lie. How do you interpret that? True or false? False if true, true if false. Can't get anywhere with that. 
very hard to live that way. Um, Vivek? Uh, caste is a, uh, a really complex cultural structure, which I've read a little about and talked to Indians a little about, and it's obviously important. Um, help, help the uninitiated here a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, I did some research last night, but I think I got my most my most profound revelation when I talked to one of my best friends from India, and he gave me an incredible perspective on caste that most people don't even know about, that I didn't know about. And so I'm gonna go a little bit into the history of caste because it's, it's honestly fascinating. Um, caste actually started out as a really advanced, complex system that we see in today's capitalist world. It started off as division of labor. It started off as promoting specialization. Um, caste, a caste wasn't a bad thing when it first started. It just means that people were specialized in certain trades. For example, we have blacksmiths, and we had um, traders, and we had uh, people in different sectors of the economy here. Similarly, we had castes in India, and they weren't they weren't silently constraining. They were just indicating what you are best at. It's division of labor. So caste actually started degrading, unfortunately, and it's actually it's actually gone through some de-evolution. Uh, and this is catalyzed when the British came. The, when the British came, they didn't grasp caste as and the advanced system of division of labor and specialization. They grasped caste as as, as a more feudal system. And so they started perpetuating this, this thought that once you're born in a caste, you're stuck in that caste forever. And that's what started bringing this negative connotations towards caste. That's what started making caste um, constraining. And I guess the best way to put this is that the, after the British came, it basically started destroying hope. People started being born in castes, and they started think, <laughs> believing they were relegated to these castes. If you look at the book, um, Balram ended, ended the passage with the quote that there are only two destinies, eat or get eaten up. And that just shows the castes de-evolved from being an advanced concept of division of labor, of specialization, to something that you're constrained to. And I think that today, the only thing that's, that separates caste from an advanced capitalist structure is mobility. In, in a caste system, there's not mobility because you're born into a system and you're stuck with it forever. In an American system, for example, you at least have the hope and the ability to move from caste, from, from trade to trade, from caste to caste. And I think that's a trend that's going to be reversed. As well, and with, at the foundation of India as a democracy in 1947, there was a huge emphasis on the Dalit, the untouchables and on pr making sure that they had um, opportunities similar to other people. Anybody know anything about that effort? Yes. Um, there, the Mundell Commission um, started this program where kind of like affirmative action here, but much more restrictive in the sense that there are numerical quotas. Um, so there are quotas for three types of people. OBCs, um, other, um, other backward classes, which is not necessarily as much caste or jati, but more about economic, mm -hmm. economic. So a Brahmin, which is the highest caste, can also be part of this caste, I mean part of this um, um, designation if they do not earn as much as they are supposed to, like 10 rupees a month or something like that. Then you have Adivasis, which is a scheduled tribe system, and then you also have a scheduled caste system, which goes back to the original caste. Now what's really interesting about the caste system, as you know, was just mentioned that there is no 
um, mobility, but in essence, there's still differences going on in India right now. So people do move around, can move around, for example, they can go in and out of the OVC category. Um, so that still exists. And then these um, designations happen in government positions. So in IITs, which is as, you know, Hyundai was from IIT, and all these other institutions that are government institutions, like the proportion of the population that is in any of these designations have to have those seats in those um, institutions. Good. Admirably done. Um, uh, Jasmine. Uh, I, I asked Jasmine to think about the passage which begins with chopping onions unusually early in the morning and then the discoveries which followed that and what it might tell us about the role of religion. Yeah, um, on page 90 in The White Tiger, um, it talks about like a discovery of Baram uh, about the number one driver, uh, Ram Prasad. And um, basically he just, uh, he found out that um, Ram Prasad was um, a Muslim because he was observing Ramadan and he's not eating. He's chopping up onions in the, yeah, in the dark because he has to fast during the day. And so Bahram was able to use this fact as an advantage to him and um, basically because the landlord is a Hindu and there is um, kind of a, like a religious tension between the Hindu majority and the Muslims in traditional in parts of India. So um, uh, when he he, bas uh, he talked to another servant about this, and he was able to make his way to Delhi just because he was using this fact. Okay. So historically, this this cleavage between Muslim and Hindu has been a huge factor in the history of South Asia. Yes. Um, um, basically. I guess a, a lot of Hindus uh, thought that Muslims was like an invader culture, and also in um, like the 1947, uh, when they had uh, well, basically India was subdivided into Pakistan, like a Muslim uh, subcontinent and a uh, Muslim country, and the like now modern India. So. Good, and the the uh, the other layer is captured in the line in the book, there is no hatred like that of the number two servant for the number one servant, right? And that close conflict, uh, we, we recognize, you see that everywhere around here, you see it even on the faculty. Um, um, Susie Park, yeah, that's the question. You're, I was gonna ask you about about um, servant, servant hostility to servant, and so on. Well, I guess, um, um, well, basically, it's kind of similar to servant hostility to masters, I think, because, like, when you look at, like, the person to person, like, you're not actually hating the person themselves, but more, like, because um, you're, um, like, he has this, kind of like bitterness um, at the system itself. But then like in some part of the book, it said like they don't dare really like blame the bigger government, like the nation itself, but they're more about like blaming like the local, like smaller like level and like the landlords. Um, so it's kind of like um, they're 
like the white tiger was more um, into like hitting the number one driver rather than like the system itself. Right, and so the idea is the displacement of hostility to the huge system onto the little system within the household. Mm -hmm. The uh, nafez. Um, the, there's a, I think one of the great lines in the book is the one about um, the, coop, the coop, the chicken coop is guarded from within. What's all that? I mean, the way I interpreted it was it's more like of a social construct where, I mean, if you just look at the back of the book, it says Balram Halawi is a complicated man, servant, philosopher, entrepreneur, etc. But when you're inside the coop, you're only thinking of how can I be a better servant. So it's a social construct whereby, I mean, we can even relate it to the hatred of servant one, servant two to servant one, is because the servant, you're not thinking of becoming a master. What, you, what you're aspiring to is servant one. And it just scares you to get out of that social construct. And the only way to get out of it is to resolve to something extreme like killing your master. Okay, so that often the victims of a huge, hugely oppressive situation uh, are hostile more to, more to people who are their peers or near peers than to people who are their vast superiors. And that's a pretty good generalization, actually. Um, Sebastian? There we are. Um, tell us about the car accident. All right, so uh, in page 137, there's a uh, uh, Pinky Madam decides that she wants to drive, um, tells the driver to get out, then she comes back. Uh, she's very drunk at this point, comes back, gets in the tells the driver to get back in the car, and then drives off and hits uh, something. At first, we don't know what it is. We uh, quickly discover it's, it's a child. Um, and everyone's kind of in shock. Uh, and I think, I don't know if you want me to say more of the details of the accident, but the biggest implication is that then Bahram is asked to take the blame for this for this accident that that his master's uh, wife uh, committed, um, and instead of thinking uh, of how he can not take the blame, he kind of starts automatically assuming, "How am I going to survive in jail? What am I going to do to survive?" Um, and I think it goes back to that thing that we were just talking about, you know, the rooster coop, where it's just absolute perpetual servitude. Uh, it's kind of very much intrinsic in the Okay, good. Now, and, and what, the, what this is straightforward, straightforward criminal corruption, right? And this, it's a criminal act that the, the Kash couple are committing. And the, the white tiger basically, basically just lives with it. Right? And later in the book, Anne, where are you? Uh, later in the book, Anne, um, the concept of rage gets to be center stage. I think on page 196, is it? Help us with that. What's going on with that? Well, I think to a certain extent, he realized that he realizes that the only way um, for him to escape kind of from the rooster coop is to do something extreme. And one thing that um, he talks about when he describes the, roost, the whole rooster coop analogy 
is that like he mentions family as part of that explanation. He says that family is like the Mike thing. a little closer. Oh, sorry. That family is the thing that keeps you in the coop. And so I think like he needs a really powerful emotion to counteract the family ties in order to break free. Okay. So he's uh, in two different coercive networks, one to do with his own family and another to do with uh, the, the family which employs him. Um, Uh, Jake, are you here? Yeah. Um, the most dramatic passage in the book has to do with the, the ulterior uses of a whiskey bottle. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, Balram uses the bottle to kill uh, the son of uh, his employer. And he, use, he does this to steal the money that uh, Ashok was going to use to bribe officials, and he sort of goes off, takes it, and starts his own life. Okay, and how do you interpret what he does? Uh, I saw it as sort of emblematic of, you know, the the new India sort of, um, you know, uh, taking over and sort of replacing the old India uh, that Ashok and, and his family are sort of representative of. Um, he's, he's the son of a landowner. Uh, he, he's wealthy, and he's He's using his money to try to keep himself in power by bribing these officials. Um, and Ashok takes that money, or uh, Balram takes the money and he, and he goes and uses it to sort of start his own business and, and get himself up to the top. As he says, an act of entrepreneurship. Right. I mean, there's a huge amount of parody in this. Um, you think, do you, how do you judge him for this? I mean, I, I would say that it, it, it was, I wouldn't condone it, but I can, I can sort of understand it. Um, would you go so far as to say justifiable homicide? Not, not justifiable um, right. in the sense that, you know, he, the man that he, he murdered deserved it, but, you know, it, for him it was the only way to, to break out of the life that he'd been living. And, you know, it, to me it just sort of, it really ca captured um, just how traumatic for a society a, a, a change like modernization can be. You know, everyone's scrambling to, to get themselves ahead and in the process, you know, people get stepped on. People okay, so you see it as a rational act, yeah. not an act of rage. Yeah, I think it was definitely a, a rational act, um, but I don't know if that justifies it. Okay, well, I don't think it justifies it. I, I, I'm not much on justifiable homicide as a, as a cultural trope. Um, but it makes it easy to understand, doesn't it? Uh, Amy Chua in the law school has a book about, um, that begins with a story from her own family in the Philippines. And um, in it, her grandmother is murdered by the family chauffeur. And the, um, the police record where, where motive is recorded has just one word, revenge. And the relationship between people who are completely dependent servants of arbitrary uh, families who behave arbitrarily and uh, cruelly, th this is a, an ancient story and it's one that's easy to understand. Now, 
let's get back to bigger picture. Um, why is Balram so weak? Well, there's, I had another question. I asked somebody about English language. Who did I ask? Okay, I'll ask myself. Uh, English plays a huge part in the class structure of a society like, like India. And the, let's just list Balram's weaknesses economically. <coughs> One is English is not his first language. His family and the debt to the stork, was it? Yeah, the, the, the debt which gets him jerked out of school and which is a constant burden to the family. That's another weakness. He drops out of school because his uncle rips him out of school, actually, forcefully. Other weaknesses. Caste, he, he is not from an advantaged caste. Sweet makers, I don't quite understand why that's that disadvantaged, but. Um, uh, what about the world demographic transition? Is the world demographic transition bearing down on this young man at all? Yes, because the huge surge of population in the darkness of India creates a devastatingly plentiful supply of unskilled labor. So that the market equilibrium price of unskilled labor is very, very low. And the standards you have to use in treating employees in unskilled or semi-skilled semi jobs in order to keep them with you are near zero. Right? Rickshaw puller. Rickshaw pullers have essentially no market power. And it has everything to do with demography. It also, of course, has to do with educational opportunity, command of the lingua franca of the country, all those things. But when we talk about the demographic transition, it's this, it's this ultimately benign story about going from short short lives and many babies to long lives and fewer babies over a period of time. But there's a huge coercive aspect to the way it works out during the transition for people who don't have demographic luck. And luck of a luck, big time luck, historical luck, is a pretty big thing. I'll give you another example. Uh, New Haven, um, New Haven had very few black citizens before World War II. And at the time of World War II, when Southern agriculture was pushing uh, labor off the land, most of the black families who ever came to New Haven came here in about a 15-year period. And they came in search of uh, industrial employment exactly a decade before that industrial employment collapsed and went, guess where, south. The industrial employment went south seeking lower energy costs and cheaper labor so that the economic, and it's of course a much more complex story, but the timing couldn't have been worse. And Balram's timing in demographic history 
couldn't have been much worse. Now, Wednesday's case about Selco, let's hope that I can get this to run with sound. India is a paradox. Despite rapid economic growth, India has the largest population of poor in the world. You have the rich and the poor. It's a mix between the overdeveloped and the underdeveloped country. And I see 650 million people still under poverty line, or 650 million people not having access to proper energy services. And then at 2 o'clock in the morning at traffic lights you have girls begging six-year-old, seven-year-old girls begging with flowers to go to Bombay traffic jam, and we are talking of 8% growth. Isn't that we're creating a divide? We are dividing that actually going to be a much farther social unrest, social unsustainability for the country and for the rest of the developing world. Frustrated by the disparity between rich and poor, Harish Handy has made it his life's work to create sustainable solutions to bridge this gap. In 1995, Harish founded Selco to bring customized solar solutions to India's poor. The mission of the company would be that we would do interventions that would have a direct impact on the quality of life and in a very sustainable way. I spent quite some time in rural parts of India and then looked at rural electrification. Harish Handy saw firsthand how the rural poor struggled with daily power cuts, while many more had no access to electricity. He knew that by getting them affordable solar lighting, he could help improve their lives overall. With the right customized solutions, garment makers could sew more saris. Vegetable vendors could sell products after dusk. Children could study longer. And midwives could deliver babies under light. When you look at an individual household or a community or a village or a state, the political dynamics, the social dynamics, the relationship between neighbors was as important as looking at what the product was. You cannot paint everybody with the same brush. Those people are in remote areas and having centralized solar parts is not going to help them. Harish realized that in order to succeed, Selco must develop decentralized energy solutions. As one of the first companies to do so in India, Selco entered unchartered territory. There were no models to follow. So the barriers were, were not very known, what actual barriers were. So we basically jumped into the well. Um, a couple of announcements in closing. Uh, the, ca the case is in two parts, A and B. Both are posted on Classes V2 for Wednesday's class. On Monday, I will be here only by video. Um, I'm in Washington Monday, and I'm going to speak the lecture to a lens and uh, play it uh, in my own absence. 
but otherwise everything will be normal. The, um, uh, and the exams will come back on Wednesday. Uh, my impression is that the grades are outrageously high. 